In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. There was a man named Lazarus who lived in the village of Bethany with the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and he was ill. It was the same Mary, the sister of the sick man Lazarus, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. The sisters sent this message to Jesus, Lord, the man you love is ill. On receiving the message, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death, but in God's glory, and through it the Son of God will be glorified. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he learned that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was for two more days before saying to his disciples, Let us go to Judea. The disciples said, Rabbi, it is not long since the Jews wanted to stone you. Are you going back again? Jesus replied, Are there not twelve hours in the day? A man can walk in the daytime without stumbling because he has the light of this world to see by. But if he walks at night, he stumbles because there is no light to guide him. He said that and then added, Our friend Lazarus is resting. I am going to wake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he is able to rest, he is sure to get better. The phrase Jesus used referred to the death of Lazarus, but they thought that by rest he meant sleep. So Jesus put it plainly, Lazarus is dead, but for your sake I am glad I was not there, because now you will believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, known as the twin, said to the other disciples, Let us go too and die with him. On arriving, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days already. Bethany is only about two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to sympathize with them over their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus had come, she went to meet him. Mary remained sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, he will grant you. Your brother, said Jesus to her, will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who was to come into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in a low voice, The Master is here and he wants to see you. Hearing this, Mary got up quickly and went to him. 
Jesus had not yet come into the village, he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in the house sympathizing with Mary saw her get up and so quickly and go out, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Mary went to Jesus, and as soon as she saw him, she threw herself at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. At the sight of her tears and those of the Jews who followed her, Jesus said in great distress, with a sigh that came straight from the heart, Where have you put him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, See how much he loved him. There were some who remarked, He opened the eyes of the blind man. Could he not have prevented this man's death? Still sighing, Jesus reached the tomb. It was a cave with a stone to close the opening. Jesus said, Take the stone away. Martha said to him, Lord, by now he will smell. This is the fourth day. Jesus replied, Have I not told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing my prayer. I knew indeed that you always hear me, but I speak for the sake of all these who stand around me so that they may believe it was you who sent me. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, here, come out. The dead man came out, his feet and hands bound with bands of stuff and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go free. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. This gospel is given to us to begin the fifth week of Lent as we're about to enter the Passion. And it is the last sign recorded in the Gospel of St. John, the last of the seven miracles that Jesus performs, each of them pointing to the identity and the mission of Jesus. And this is the culmination. Jesus reveals himself here as the resurrection and the life, not only in words to Martha, but in deeds in raising Lazarus from the dead. Of course, this raising of Lazarus from the dead is a raising to the same sort of life. Lazarus is rising again to, to die again later on to the same kind of life that we have, whereas the resurrection of Jesus, which it foreshadows, is a resurrection to the new life of glory, which will never die, and which Jesus in him we have as a promise. But still, this sign is given to us as this culmination, this fullness of revelation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do to give us that life that Lazarus here receives um, as a premise. We are in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of St. John. And in this chapter, we see that Jesus had already gone before that um, to beyond the Jordan, and that was in chapter 10. In chapter 10, 
which is the discourse of the Good Shepherd, which comes just before this chapter 11 of the raising of Lazarus. Chapter 10 finished with, again, they tried to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he has a skirmish with the Jews and the chief priests. But then in, in verse 40 of chapter 10, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John at first baptized, and there he remained. And many came to him. So that's where he is. That's the last known location that St. John gives us in his gospel about where Jesus is before he travels back to Jerusalem. Because Bethany, where he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, is only two miles from Jerusalem. So this comes after the Good Shepherd narrative. And it comes after two attempts at stoning Jesus. So we really begin to understand why the disciples are so worried when Jesus wants to go to Bethany, to, to Lazarus, because they know that if Jesus goes back near Jerusalem, he will surely die. He will, they will not let him get away with it this time because twice they have tried to stone him. The first attempt to stone Jesus was in John eight fifty nine. Uh, after Jesus reveals himself as I am in the most dramatic way, uh, so we have this dialogue with the Jews. The Jews said then to him, you are not 50 years old and ha you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus uses the very name of God for himself. He claims it for himself before Abraham was, I am. And immediately, so they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So that's the first attempt recorded in St. John's Gospel. And then the second attempt at stoning him was in chapter 10, just before this uh, narrative of the raising of Lazarus. So chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch, snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. So every time they tried to stone him when Jesus claims his divinity. Before Abraham was, I am. So they took up stones to throw at him. I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. So twice this uh, attempt at stoning him, and in fact chapter 10 doesn't end there, but it ends with another attempt to arrest him. So verse 39, they tried to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So the situation is extremely dangerous for Jesus. And the disciples in our narrative are pointing that to him. Lord, you know, um, let us go to Judea. The disciples said, Rabbi, it is not long since the Jews wanted to stone you. Are you going back again? And Jesus has this mysterious answer. Are there not 12 hours in the day? A man can walk in the daytime without stumbling. So we don't really know what Jesus means. But because he's talking about time and daylight, we know he's, he's called himself the light of the world. There is something very reassuring about the words of Jesus, that he knows what he's doing. And when he starts off by saying, are there not 12 hours in the day? Time is his. He's 
master, his rabbi, he's in charge. He he freely gives his life. He chooses to freely give his life and to take him back again. He is master of time and of his own freedom. And so he reassures the disciples that he is in charge here. He's supremely in charge. In fact, in the Gospel of St. John, this is one of the aspects that, that really comes across very strongly, especially in the Passion, how Jesus is, is king. He really is God, freely pouring out himself, but no one takes it from him. No one makes him do what he does not want to do. He offers, he sacrifices his life willingly, freely, surrenders himself at the hand of those who arrest him, and yet he's supremely in control. So um, when, when this discussion with the disciples end, we have Thomas say to the other disciples, let us go to and die with him. So the disciples are very, very aware that this is it. This is the last trip of Jesus to Jerusalem. Let us go to and die with him. Which makes it so that the raising of Lazarus, we can understand the raising of Lazarus to be at the cost of the life of Jesus. And so if we understand Lazarus to represent humanity befriended by God, the man you love is ill, the man you love is sick, humanity stricken with the sickness of sin which brings about death. And we see the whole movement of God in Jesus coming to save Lazarus, his friend, humanity, at the cost of his own life. This trip of Jesus to Bethany is at the cost of his own life. It's a life for a life. He gives his life so that his friend Lazarus might live. This is not a danger-free trip. It's It will ask everything of him. And in fact, this raising of Lazarus, is it's very clear in chapter 12 in St. John that this is the last straw for the for the Jews, for the chief priests. This is the one thing that just now they really want to get rid of him and they will not stop at anything to get rid of Jesus. And in fact, they will want to get rid of Lazarus too because in, in chapter 12, we have uh, this resolution to kill Jesus, but not only that, but to kill Lazarus. Chapter 12 Verse 8, when the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to the death, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Which is the perversity of it all, that this man has just been brought to back to life, and the chief priests want to kill him. Um, the perversity of evil, destroying everything that is good, even twice over. Now, we are in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, after the Good Shepherd narrative, and Jesus comes, but he comes late. He comes so late. There's this whole tension and anguish of, why did he wait so long? Could not have he come... Have uh, could he not have come before? And because of that tension and that emotion, that drama, this is the only passage where Jesus is described as weeping for his friend. Jesus wept for Lazarus. It is through this drama 
that Jesus reveals himself really as the resurrection and the life, the one in whom we are absolutely sure to place our hope, that we have full confidence that our hope will not be disappointed, no matter how long he takes to come to our help, no matter how long we have to wait, our hope in Jesus will not be disappointed. This is the message of Martha and Mary to us in that gospel. Now that passage can be broken up into four chunks. Verses 1 to 16, this whole message that comes to Jesus, the man you love is ill. The man you love is ill. And from that message sent by Martha and Mary, we have the decision of Jesus to go to wake Lazarus from sleep, and in fact, the sleep of death, and it will be at the cost of his life. So that decision of Jesus, absolutely free and deliberate, this deliberate waiting, but this deliberate going. And in the waiting and the going, we can feel the whole tension of the history of salvation. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world. Now, why didn't God send his son before? Why did we have to wait so long for the Messiah? And in our life, why do we have to wait so long for the salvation for which we thirst? Why do we have to hope and wait and not be able to see that salvation in so many ways? Why are we asked to wait? Why would God keep away his salvation for so long in our life, in the life of those we love? Why this waiting, what is anguish, this suffering? And the man you love is ill. Now this waiting, which we all experience together in this time, most tragically in this time of confinement, waiting on the Lord. Lord, when, when will we be get rid of this disease, of this illness? The man you love is ill here. The whole of humanity is ill, ill with that dreadful virus, ill with the, the incapacity, the paralysis of waiting for a solution, for a, a cure. And the whole world is paralyzed, confined, isolated, deprived of being able to go to church, deprived of being able to worship God. Lord, what are you doing? This waiting of Martha and Mary, we all in these days experience so profoundly in our own life. Why is God asking us to wait so long? Why is he not coming right, right now? So we have exactly the same question that Martha and Mary have for Jesus. That's the first part. The man you love is ill. The second part is Jesus who meets Martha. And in this meeting of Martha, we have that, that proclamation of faith that Martha has immediately as she sees Jesus. And she says those words, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And these words will be repeated by Mary later on. But whereas with Mary, when Mary pronounces these words, there's this whole emotional response. With Martha, these words are an invitation to faith. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know 
that even now, whatever you ask of God, he will grant you. Martha has this incredible confession of faith. The faith of that woman is astonishing. She has been waiting. She has been hoping. Now the hope is gone. Her brother is dead. But even now, whatever you ask of God, he will grant you. Your brother said Jesus will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again at the resurrection in the last day. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. Do you believe this? So Martha, every time she professes her faith, Jesus actually challenges her to believe even more. So she proclaims her faith in the resurrection. I know he will rise again at the last day. Jesus challenges her to believe in him even more. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who was to come into the world. With Martha, we have an extraordinary profession of faith in the midst of the most dramatic loss of this anguish. The fact that Jesus hasn't been here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is a faith we are called to imitate in this time. We too suffer deprivation and loss. We suffer anguish. We suffer isolation. We suffer the absence of God in, in some very critical ways in the sacraments. We suffer the absence of God in the communion that we have with our brothers and sisters in fellowship. We suffer the absence of God in the fact that he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers at the moment. Even then, I know that's what we can say with, with Martha. When we're able to say, I know, it's a profession of faith here. Because it's not a knowledge that comes to her from rationalization, from sort of argumentation, from purely human conclusion. This is a knowledge that comes from the revelation of God on the assurance that God who has spoken is true. Because it is God who has promised it. And so she really is an example of faith for us. With our faith, we don't just say, I, I think, I'm, I'm, I feel, I'm not sure, but I hope. With faith, we are able to say, I know. I know. This is an act of faith is expressed in saying, I know. Faith is a knowledge. It's a supernatural knowledge, a knowledge that is founded on God's revelation, that ascends to God's revelation because God is true because God cannot lie and it is a supernatural gift but it is also the whole and total ascent of our understanding to that revelation so Martha who says I know that even now whatever you ask of God he will grant you this is a tremendous act of faith which we are called to imitate in our time of need I know he will rise again at the last day I know I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who was to come into the world. With Martha, we have a wonderful model that we can imitate in, in these times. And that's the second part of our gospel. The third part, we're moving from the faith of Martha to the love of Mary. So from faith to charity, Mary experiences the anguish of love, the sorrow of love, and is able to express it even more so than Martha, it seems. Martha seems sort of calm and collected compared with Mary. 
with Mary, the, the whole narrative takes on an emotional tension. And so she runs to Jesus. Mary got up quickly and went to him. And then when Mary went to Jesus, as soon as she saw him, she threw herself at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's all she says. But she threw herself at his feet. And so you see, it's not a reproach. She's not angry with Jesus. She is at his feet worshipping. When, after the resurrection of Jesus, we find Mary again, she's still at Jesus' feet because it's in John 12. So immediately after Lazarus has come back out of the tomb, and this is what happens immediately after our narrative, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of ointment. So Mary is at the feet of Jesus before he has done anything, before the miracle, and she's at the feet of Jesus after. And that attitude of being at the feet is an attitude of utter love and worship, utter trust. But it's, it's really that charity, that union with Jesus. Charity is this virtue that makes us one with him. And when Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, it's not a reproach. It's a statement of fact. And yet she's saying it while embracing his feet. And so what is Jesus' response to Mary? Equally emotional. At the sight of her tears and those of the Jews who followed her, Jesus said in great distress with a sigh that came straight from the heart, Where have you put him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the love of Mary moves the heart of Jesus. We had the faith of Martha, we now have the love of Mary. And yet they say exactly the same words to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And these two women show us how to cope when there are no answers to be seen to our prayers. How to cope where our waiting seems to be endless how to cope when God seems to be absent. Lord, if you had been here. We are called to respond in faith, like Martha. We are called to respond in love, like Mary. Not with less love for God, but for greater love for God. Greater union with him. Greater yearning from him. Running to him, like Mary. Kissing his feet. Even though we have not had an explicit answer to the prayer and then and this is the last part jesus does raise lazarus from the dead unexpectedly he answers the yearning of faith and the yearning of love beyond all expectation and the, the narrative of the raising of lazarus reminds us of course of the raising of jesus lazarus is put in a cave with a stone to close the opening like Jesus. Jesus said, take the stone away. We remember the women going 
in the morning of the resurrection thinking, who's going to take the stone away? Because you need many people, you need men, strong men to roll these stones. And what was done purely by the power of God in Jesus' resurrection is done here, done not only by Jesus, but with, with the participation of so many, those who take the stone away, and then those who unbind him. But what is astonishing with the resurrection of Lazarus is that in the narrative, someone who is dead seems to be having still a sense of hearing. Jesus talks first to his father and prays out loud, which is very rare. So we have the recount, the account of the prayer of Jesus. Father, I thank you for hearing my prayer. Jesus thanks the father before the prayer has been answered. Father, I thank you for hearing my prayer. I knew indeed that you always hear me, but I speak for the sake of all these who stand around me that they may believe that it was you to send me. So Jesus speaks to his father, and then Jesus speaks to Lazarus. When he has said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, here, come out. The dead man came out. So Lazarus is dead. Here's the voice of Jesus. How is that possible? Well, that's when we need to remember what comes immediately before the account of the raising of Lazarus, which is the Good Shepherd. What does the Good Shepherd do in John 10? The Good Shepherd calls his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And then, earlier on in John 10, 2, 4, Jesus said of himself that he is the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And that's exactly what he did for Lazarus. He calls Lazarus by name, Lazarus, here, and he leads him out. Come out. He leads him out of the tomb. Jesus is the good shepherd who comes to bring the lost sheep. He comes to find the lost sheep. How is the sheep lost? Because the sheep, Lazarus, who represents the whole of humanity, has been lost through sin. And the consequence of sin is death. Lost where God could not really reach him. And that's why we have this very, very mysterious question of Jesus who perhaps was overwhelmed with his emotions. We don't know why he's asking this question, because it is really a strange question that Jesus would be asking, where have you put him? If he's dead, he will be in the tomb. Where have you put him? They said, Lord, come and see. Still signs Jesus reached the tomb. So where have you put him? Doesn't Jesus know? He knew Lazarus was dead, four days ago, when no one else knew around him. And we know that the, the way that Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead was supernatural, because when he had his dialogue with his disciple, with John, is is very careful to recount. John explicitly said that Jesus knew very well that Lazarus was dead. The phrase Jesus used referred to the death of Lazarus, but they thought that by rest he meant sleep. So Jesus put it plainly, Lazarus is dead. And that was four days before. So if Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead, 
Why is he asking where did you push where have you put him? And that question, where have you put him? Where are you? is an echo of that question that God asks of Adam in the garden after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. There is a sense in which we can see in Jesus coming to the tomb, God looking for man, God looking for lost humanity, humanity lost by sin into death. God coming to reach out to humanity in that place of separation where God is not because God is life and God is the giver of life. And Jesus, in God in Jesus comes the life. I am the resurrection and the life. God in Jesus comes to seek out dead humanity, humanity dead in sin, the lost sheep in the place that would have been unreachable to God. And yet he reaches into that very place by assuming our humanity and taking on the consequence of our sin, going all the way to death or going all the way through the very experience of death in order to raise the death to life. And this is the image that we have with the raising of Lazarus. God coming to the tomb, coming to seek out lost humanity. Where have you put him? This sense of, in in the same way that this question is, extremely strange in Genesis 3, 8 to 9. Uh, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? As if God didn't know, as if something was hidden from God, as if there is something that God doesn't know. And yes, in this sense, there is something that God doesn't know, which is the experience of sin and death. When we say no to God, we put ourselves outside of his reach and he has to look for us because he has no knowledge of sin and death. He has he who is life, he who is goodness, he who is truth. Because by sin and death, we begin a process of self-destruction, which is against everything that God is, who is love, who is life, who is resurrection, who is truth. And so there is this question, where are you, is actually an authentic question of God looking out for you, looking out for us, trying to seek us into the place where we have put ourselves outside of his reach by separating ourselves from him. Where have you put him? And Jesus weeps when he sees the tomb because he weeps when he sees what we do with ourselves when we sin. We see the sacred heart of Jesus burning with love for humanity is revealed. Jesus wept. God pours himself out, pours his love out to reach us, to come to seek us, the good shepherd give his life for his sheep. He saves Lazarus at the cost of his life. That's what he has come to do, the good shepherd looking for the lost sheep. So we see this wonderful exchange of turning death into life, 
And really, we understand now that the resurrection of Lazarus is just an image, really, of what Jesus is about to do in his own passion, where he will seek us even to the depth of hell. He descended into hell, he descended into Sheol to save the dead. So we can see manifested not only his power to raise from the dead, but his will, his desire to come and seek us in a place where he is not. And this calls for our faith. This calls for our faith. Our faith in Jesus is a matter of life and death. He is the only one who can raise the dead to life. He is the only one in whom we find a new completely new experience of life. The risen Christ offers us a life that is eternal, that is free from sin and suffering, that is free from any death, that is completely integrated, that is lived in the fullness of God, that is turned towards freely towards love and towards truth that is God, a new experience of life is on offer for us. It's only in him that we can have it. He's the only way, he's the only resurrection that we have is his. So it's only by being united with him that we can have access to this new life through faith in him. And this, we find an echo of this reality of this life offered to us through Jesus Christ, only through him, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in, in, in Luke 16, which extraordinarily has the same name, Lazarus. Now, Lazarus, in the parable of Luke, is a fictional character because it's a parable, so it's a story that Jesus tells us. But it's the only fictional character in parables, the only man who has a name in the parables. In the other parables, you have the sower, the rich man, the farmer, uh, the poor man, but you don't have names. Lazarus is the only one who's named. And coincidentally, he's the same name as the friend of Jesus, the man you love. Lazarus is the man that Jesus loves. And in that parable of Luke, we can see that it is indeed the man that Jesus loves. And the poor man Lazarus, there is this aspect in the parable that is stunning because it is so like the resurrection of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus. It's at the end when the rich man in hell has this dialogue with Abraham. And the rich man is begging for Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house. Uh, for I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they also should come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so we see from the parable in Luke that really Faith in Jesus who rises from the death, from, from death, is a matter of life and death, is a matter of eternal life or eternal separation from God. There is no other promise that we have been given, no other reality to the future. All other, all other options are fanciful compared with the concrete experience of the resurrection 
that has been experienced by those who have seen Lazarus come out of the tomb. And this experience is fully manifested in the very resurrection of Jesus, because here is that new life for humanity. For the first time, this new life enters into the world, and this is what's on offer for us. And this offer we respond to by our faith. Now, I've said about Mary and Martha that Martha represents faith and Mary represents love in their same words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but the different attitude. Martha, I know, I believe, and Mary, who just is at the feet of Jesus, completely completely overwhelmed by her sorrow, and yet firm in her love for Jesus, worshipping at his feet. What about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus, perhaps, in that sense, could represent hope. And this particular aspect of hope, which is not uh, a hope that we have in ourselves, hope, the hope that God looks for is hope in him, trust in him. How can Lazarus have any trust or hope is dead? But his very paralysis in the tomb is bound by all this cloth he can't move. Is precisely what we experience, this sense of hopelessness. And this feeling of paralysis should not overwhelm us. We should be able to decide in the midst of the paralysis that we can experience, and especially at this time, we're all pretty much paralyzed at home, not able to do anything. But in the midst of this paralysis, we have a choice. We can let ourselves be lured into that paralysis at the dimension of our mental life and our spiritual life. We can decide this is it. There is nothing to expect. God is not there. There is nothing to wait for. Or we can decide, and it is really a decision, to place our trust in God and to wait on him. Because even in the midst of darkness, of the death of the tomb, as he was lying paralyzed, he could not save himself. And this is an experience we all have to undergo. We cannot save ourselves there. At some point, we are so limited And perhaps this experience is salvific insofar as we are faced with our own limitations. And finally, we will have to turn to the one who can save us when we recognize, actually, whatever I can do is of no avail here. I have to put my trust somewhere else. I have got to put my trust in God, who alone can save me. And here, Lazarus is this figure of humanity unable to save itself, utterly dependent on the salvation promised by God. And yet hope is here because when the voice of God, the Creator, the Saviour, when Jesus speaks, remember, he's the word of the Father, the word through whom the whole universe was created. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This creating word is speaking personally to Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. The word of God 
the creating word of God, the saving word of God is spoken to that person and Lazarus comes out. When Lazarus comes out, he does it, he obeys. There is this obedience, this response, this personal response, this personal movement of desire towards God and towards life, and that is hope. Hope is a movement. Hope is our desire to reach for the life for which we are made, which is promised to us, and which in the midst of an experienced paralysis we can still expect from God whom we know loves us. And loves us with a personal personal love. He calls us by name. When we are baptized, we are called by name. The Good Shepherd calls our name. Matthew, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Julia, I baptize you. The name is spoken, and that name will endure. And when Jesus speaks the name Lazarus, come out. He also wants to speak our name, and that name will be spoken before we die in baptism, after we die at the resurrection of the dead. Our name will be spoken. God has a plan for each one of us, and we need to put our hope, our trust, that he will fulfill his promise. And so hope is not so much the experience of being able to Hope because we've achieved so much and we have some ground to hope, um, some, some sort of credit we have built for ourselves, some sort of assets that we can present. Yes, Lord, I deserve to be saved and therefore I, I can hope because I've done really well for myself so far. Hope is built on nothing but the promise of God. We don't hope because we're good. We hope because God is good and his goodness endures forever. He's all-powerful. His voice speaks through death and defeats death. And he's all-merciful. He comes to save each one of us. And his mercy endures forever and extends in every situation, even the most remote, the most sinful situation. The mercy of God extends everywhere. There is nowhere that God will not reach. That's why he comes to the tomb. He comes to the very place of death. As he comes into our own life, into the place of death. And we must trust him. There is no way that we can place too much trust in God. We are never right to say, I, I have trusted enough, now I will stop. It's actually sinful to say that. There is no limit to the amount of trust that we can place in God. Even though we feel we don't deserve it, particularly when we feel we don't deserve it, we are right to trust in God because he comes to save us in the paralysis of death. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out.